Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters, which is a, is a brilliant fictional interaction between a senior demon named Screwtape and his nephew demon, whose name is Wormwood. How many people have read The Screwtape Letters? Okay, so most of us actually. So Screwtape's job is to train demons to become better at their job, to learn better strategies so that they can do a better job of making things hard for people. And so in the Screwtape letters, it's, it, it's this collection of letters back and forth between Screwtape and his nephew, Wormwood. In the preface to the book, C.S. Lewis, the author, he says something really, really helpful about demons. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devils. He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. You know, that's a, a mistake that I made when I was a young believer. As a, as a teenager, in grades 9 and 10, uh, I, growing up in the country, for me, the, when the weekend came, the weekend meant, like, Friday night, Saturday night, getting together with my buddies, having some drinks, getting in the car, and driving out to the graveyard outside of town. And at about 2 or 3 a.m., bringing out a Ouija board, setting it on the, on the gravestones, and using it to, like, dial up whatever spirits or demons we could talk to. That was, that was a Friday night for us. And so years later, yes, and I'm your pastor, and, and, and years later, when I became a follower of Jesus, when I asked Jesus to become Lord of my life, I was actually really concerned that it didn't work, that it didn't, it didn't take and so I, I came across this book called The Bondage Breaker. Are you familiar with this book, The Bondage Breaker? Okay, some, maybe a few of us. The Bondage Breaker is a book about spiritual warfare. It's about getting free from demons. And when I read The, the Bondage Breaker, it became kind of like a second Bible for me. Because it taught how demons attack, when they attack, and, and, and how I can take authority over demons and cast them out just like Jesus did. Now that wasn't helpful for me. That wasn't a helpful thing for me. And the reason is because instead of me taking responsibility for my choices and responsibility for my actions as a follower of Jesus, it put me in this place where I was blaming demons for all of my problems. Where I was, instead of fighting temptation, instead of praying for strength to fight against sin, I would look for a demon of lust and cast it out. Or I would look for a demon of anger or a demon of pride and I would cast them out. And I became obsessed with it. And so it was really true what C.S. Lewis said. It's, it's not better to be obsessed with demons than it is to be totally ignorant of the fact that they are real. That's true. Now, this is our, sex, our sixth and our second last message in the series of, in the book of Daniel. Each week as we've been going along, what we've seen is that it's actually possible for us to flourish even though, if we're honest, life in Hamilton is a lot like life in Babylon. We live in Babylon, okay? And that's what we've been talking about for the last six weeks or so. So today we pause and we look at a passage uh, in Daniel, and we're going to look at some others, that involve angels and demons, all right? Today's a conversation about spiritual warfare. And today what I'm asking, here's kind of the question that's driving this study, 
It's what is it that God means for us to think and do about spiritual warfare? Okay? What does God mean for us to think and do about spiritual warfare? And we're going to come to an answer uh, from this passage, first of all. Then we're going to look at some of what Scripture says before the cross. We'll see what Scripture says after the cross. And then we're going to end with a few promises that God has made for us as we face spiritual warfare. I will say I'm not going to be able to address every passage that Scripture has on this subject. I'm not going to be able to answer every question you may have about spiritual warfare in the message. And so if you would like, if you have a question that comes up during the message that I don't answer, please feel free to text your question into the the phone number at the bottom of the screen. I'd love to chat with a group of us after the gathering. But let's begin by looking at uh, spiritual warfare here just in, in Daniel chapter 10. Just in chapter 10. So we have a vision, okay, of an angel. Daniel has this vision of an angel, and what Daniel says when he sees this angel is he sees a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looks like a, looked like a precious gem. His face flashed with, like lightning, and his eyes flamed with like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. The sound of this being's voice, the sound of his voice causes Daniel to fall down and like faint, almost like he's dead. Now, you might not know, because it doesn't use the word angel, what is this? Is this, is this possibly an appearance of the Son of God or something like that? Well, in the book of Revelation, way at the end of the Bible, in chapter 15, there are seven of these same beings that appear, and there they're called angels, same description, okay? But we've actually seen them before, even in the book of Daniel. We saw them, for example, in the furnace, in the fiery furnace in, in chapter 3. We saw them in the lion's den in chapter 6 with Daniel. And in both of those cases, it turns out it was, it was, we're actually probably talking about an appearance of God the Son. Jesus probably showed up in, in, in those uh, scenarios. Then from chapter 7 in the book of Daniel all the way to the end, from chapter 7 to 12, which is the last half of the book, it's angels who are telling the story. And they bring dreams and visions, and the angels uh, tell uh, Daniel about these beasts and these monsters that are coming, and some of these monsters will be kings, and some of these monsters will be empires and kingdoms, and and these monsters and and, and beasts and stuff, they're going to be at work behind the scenes, pulling the strings, completely invisible to the culture. Like making the whole population suffer. Nobody's going to know about it, but it's really going to be these monsters who are at work. That's That's what's going on here. And so here in chapter 10, uh, we have something really interesting that happens. In chapter 10, we have this meeting, uh, we have this this angel telling Daniel about this interesting meeting that he had. Uh, the The angel tells Daniel, since the first day that you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven, and I have come in answer to your prayer. So the angel comes in order, in answer, in response to Daniel's prayer, an angel is on his way. Boom, he's on his way. But in verse 13, for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. So so there's this spirit prince who apparently he fights for Persia and he blocks the angel. And he was, and, and so the, the angel had been sent to Daniel the moment Daniel starts praying, 
But this angel is blocked. He can't get there, okay? He's blocked by this spirit prince. Do you see? Are you with me on that? You see that that's what's going on in the text? Okay, so we need to ask, what is this spirit prince? Who is this? That, what, what are we talking about here? Well, this is part of an ancient worldview. You've got, you've got these beings referred to as princes who are not people, but they're powers. They're these spiritual powers. The Apostle Paul gives us a, a, a clue about this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in Ephesians 2, before we were born again in Jesus Christ, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Ephesians 2, 2. A few times in the Gospels, Jesus actually refers to Satan as the prince of demons. And so it seems like what's going on in Daniel 10 is that we have a story of spiritual warfare, okay? We have a story of a conflict between an angel and a demon. You with me on that? That's what, the, that's what it seems to be what's going on here. And notice it began the moment that Daniel started praying for wisdom. That's when the conflict began. And so we might ask, like, why? What does the demon want? What is, what's the win in it for the demon if he's able to stop Daniel's prayer from being answered? Well, the demon wants to kill Daniel's faith. He wants to kill Daniel's faith. Suppose Daniel prays and prays and prays, and 21 days later, he still doesn't have an answer to his prayer. Maybe his, his faith is shaken. Maybe he questions God. Maybe Daniel gives up on God altogether. I've known people who've walked away from the faith altogether uh, after less than 21 days of unanswered prayer. Like, that's a thing that happens. And so this text kind of pulls back the curtain a bit, and we get a glimpse of this invisible war between angels and demons fighting over Daniel's faith. And that's not weird. Like, that's just part of a biblical worldview here in, in Daniel, apparently. That's just part of the deal. Now, we could zoom out and we could see uh, what we learned by looking at spiritual warfare in other parts of Scripture before the cross. We could begin by talking about angels. We could do an entire series of sermons just on angels and what angels do, because they are all over the place in the Bible. There's an angel who shows up in the garden to block the way back to the garden for Adam and Eve after the fall. Angels visit Abraham and Sarah and, and, and Hagar. Jacob wrestles an angel, if you remember. Angels are there to uh, rescue Lot and his wife. Angels are there to bring God's judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and later to bring God's judgment on, on uh, Egypt. Angels are, the one, are there to help the Israelites in battle. In fact, one of my favorite angel stories in the Bible is the story of, of uh, the prophet Balaam, who is visited by an angel. Do you remember this story? There's, a pro there's an angel who shows up, and he speaks. He has a, a word for Balaam, and he speaks to Balaam through his donkey. And I'd encourage you to read that in the King James Version. Ask me later. So angels are all over the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament, and angels are there to announce the coming of the Messiah to Mary and to Joseph and to Elizabeth and to the shepherds. They're all over the, the Advent story. During the life of Jesus, the angels are there keeping him company, encouraging him, giving him strength. And so there are angels all over the Bible. Angels are all over the Bible. They are these powerful, holy messengers of God. They are on God's side. They do God's will, and they protect his people. So that's, those are the angels. Now, the, angel, the, the enemy is pretty powerful, too. The enemy is powerful, too. In fact, one of the places in Scripture where we learn a lot about the enemy is the book of Job. 
So I don't know if you've read the book of Job lately. There's some question about whether this is a historic, like literal historical story, or if it's kind of a parable. Uh, either way, whatever, whatever view you have of the book of Job, there's no doubt in the reader's mind that this is something that could have happened. And, and, and so it's really interesting and important to know that in the story of Job, Job is an innocent man. He did nothing to deserve what happened to him. He's minding his own business, and then he suffers one horrible tragedy after another. And we, as the readers, we learn that all of this is actually the work of Satan, or the Satan, or the adversary. Like Job's farm is, is attacked by bandits. There's this, and then there's a fire that comes down from, from heaven and consumes his livestock. Then his servants are, are killed uh, by robbers, and his, even his kids are attacked. His kids are, are together eating and drinking, having a feast, and a big storm blows up, and it, it, it knocks down the house that they're in. Even Job's body is attacked, and, and the reader knows that it's Satan who's responsible for this. Like, this is stuff that, that Satan does. These are things that he does, and n- nobody else in the story knows this. No one else understands or has that perspective. To anybody else in the story, these just look like a bunch of random, awful tragedies. They couldn't have known it was actually spiritual warfare. But it was. And this is what Job is what spiritual warfare sometimes looks like. Well, we fast forward to the Gospels, and we, we, uh, we see that when, when God became flesh in Jesus Christ, it seems like the enemy tried to do the same. And so spiritual warfare, demonic activity seems to kind of ramp up when we come to the Gospels. Uh, early on in the ministry of Jesus, he's, temp- he's visited by the devil. He's tempted to quit. The devil tries to get him to quit and, and, and bail on his mission. Jesus resists, and, the, and Satan leaves him. In fact, a huge part of the ministry of Jesus is him casting out demons from people. And these demons can do some really messed up things. All right? They're capable of some really messed up things. One guy has a demon, and the demon gives him super strength so that he breaks chains, and he can't be trapped. He can't be imprisoned. Another guy has a demon that causes him to—he he can't speak. He, can't, he loses the ability to speak because of a demon. One boy in the Gospels has a demon, and the demon causes him to have these seizures and throws him into the fire every once in a while. Also remember that at the, at the end of his ministry, just before he's arrested, we learn that the reason Judas betrayed Jesus is because Satan put it into his heart, John 13. Satan put the idea into Judas's heart. Like, that's something that the devil does. In fact, when Jesus was arrested, when the time came, uh, we, we learn that, the, that uh, Satan entered into Judas— Think of that. Satan entered into Judas. So these are some of the things, these are some of the spiritual warfare stories in the Bible that show us what the enemy is capable of. It's a lot. It's a lot. Now I want to take a, a minute and look at what, see what spiritual warfare looks like after the cross, okay? Spiritual warfare after the cross. Because after the cross, the teaching in the, in the New Testament about spiritual warfare, it, it shifts. It becomes more direct and explicit and, and, and even though Satan is defeated, the church can't afford to ignore him. The church isn't going to ignore him, nor are we going to become obsessed with him. What, we're, what we are is we're warned to be alert, to be active and alert and pay attention. Peter says, for example, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around 
like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist him. That's our spiritual warfare in 1 Peter 5. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul has a word about spiritual warfare. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's saying, he's saying here, the enemy isn't a physical one. The enemy isn't a material one, isn't a human one. The enemy is, is spiritual. And they are active in all kinds of ways, between, b- behind the scenes, in, 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 in big, cosmic, invisible ways. And the enemy is active behind the scenes, pulling strings in some very visible ways, actually, in rulers and authorities. And what that means is that certain systems, certain human systems, certain institutions, certain organizations or, or, or movements, perhaps, certain ideologies might be demonic. They might be demonic. As in, as in like, the problem beneath the problem beneath the problem is actually, perhaps, some kind of demonic activity. And so Paul has some advice for the church when he related to, to these kinds of attacks, related to this warfare. His advice is, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Put on God's armor, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In, a, in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. So how does the church fight? How does the church go about spiritual warfare? With prayer. With prayer, with God's Word, with the promises that God gives us in in the Scriptures. By being protected on all sides with God's armor. by, By letting God Himself be our armor. And you know, we could go on and on with lots of other passages that deal with spiritual warfare in Scripture, but I want to just sort of stop here and and ask about what we've seen and kind of summarize what we've seen. Our question this morning is, what is it that God means for us to think and do about spiritual warfare? And we have some answers. I want to sum it up with three things that we've seen so far, okay? Three things we've seen. The first is this. We share this world with angels and demons. Okay? That's it. We share this world with angels and demons. We live in a world where the spiritual battle doesn't happen like out there somewhere in the clouds or in the universe somewhere, okay? It happens here, like among us, around us. Sometimes that battle happens inside us, and that's the deal. Like that is, that is a biblical worldview, and we need to understand and accept that if we are going to survive and thrive here in Babylon, Okay? We share this world with angels and demons. The second thing we, we see is that the enemy means to steal your faith. His aim is to steal your faith. Sometimes he attacks with pain and suffering. Sometimes he attacks with just enough pleasure and, and comfort to cause us to forget God. Doesn't he? And sometimes his attack is to block an angel who's been sent by God to help us. Either way, His goal is to make us lose faith. In fact, if you find yourself in a situation where you are doubting God, or you're judging God, 
or you assume that God has turned against you, like maybe it's taking too long to see your, the answers to your prayers, you, I might encourage you, step back and ask whether there might be some spiritual warfare going on. There very well may be. And the third thing we see, the third thing we see from this study, I think, is that the most effective, the most powerful spiritual warfare doesn't look like warfare. It doesn't look like warfare. Demons do some of their best work behind the scenes in invisible ways, impersonal ways, pulling the strings in a culture. I think we, we I want to pause here for a minute and think about this and think about some of the things that we know are going on in our city, here in Hamilton, here in Babylon, and just reflect on these through the lens of spiritual warfare. Like, what if it turned out, what would you think if it turned out that some of the problems that we wrestle with as a city were actually demonic? What would that do for you? What would, would, like, would that surprise you to, to learn? If, we, if God were somehow able to pull back the curtain so we could see what's going on, the, the cause beneath the cause, and it turned out to be demonic, would that surprise you? Like, what if, what if the problem beneath the problem beneath the problem is actually demonic in some of these things? Would that be so hard to believe? Does that just sound crazy to you? Because just, let me, let me just pause for a moment here and just share some of what we're facing here in our city, here as we live in, in Babylon, okay? Because it seems to me interesting that in the last two to three years, the cost of rent and groceries has come to the point where it's, they are so high that people are literally killing themselves in order to avoid going deeper in debt. Like, that's a thing that's happening here in Hamilton. I believe that's demonic. I have no problem suggesting that that's, that's demonic. How, how do poverty and food scarcity cripple families in a city like ours? How is that a thing that happens? How is that really a thing that's happening in Hamilton in 2023? How did we end up with an opioid crisis where we've got pharmaceutical companies who are, are, are making record profits and, and there are addicts and, and people ODing constantly? How is that a thing that's happening? How, how is that? Where does that come from? How do we explain families where there are generations of, of physical and sexual violence against children, against women, against people in the queer community? Where does that come from? How did we get to the place where we have people in our culture marching for the right to end lives by doctor-assisted suicide or by abortion? How is that a thing that happens in our culture? It's because we live in Babylon, yo. We live in Babylon, and this is a culture of death. This is a culture of death, because here in Babylon, life is expendable. Life is expendable. Here in Babylon, if you're not rich, if you're not powerful, if you're not beautiful, you are just taking up space. And we are supposed to just look around at one another and throw up our hands and say, it's just too complex. It's too nuanced. Like, don't spiritualize it. This is the world we live in. It's just, the world is just broken. And the world is broken. But let's be honest. You and I, we're also supposed to wake up on Monday, go to work, live our lives. That's exactly what the powers want. That's exactly what the demons want, isn't it? They want us to feel hopeless, and they want us to feel overwhelmed. They want us to look away so that we don't realize that there's actually someone pulling the, the strings behind these situations. Somebody that Jesus called a murderer from the beginning. The one who Jesus called, the one who comes only to kill and steal and destroy. 
What I'm suggesting here is that in situations like these and, and, and lots of others, it's not wrong to think that the problem might actually be demonic. That's not crazy, okay? Like that would be entirely consistent with a biblical worldview. And it reminds me actually of something that I read in, in the Screwtape Letters. At, at one point, uh, Uncle Screwtape is, is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, and he's trying to set him straight about what's actually the most effective strategy for spiritual warfare. The, way, the best way for demons to attack is not to shock or to terrify or to traumatize people, but to act slowly and subtly and invisibly over time. And what Screwtape says to Wormwood is, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And I think that that's true. I think C.S. Lewis nailed it right there. And I think that that's what we're up against. That is what we are up against. And by the way, as if that wasn't bad enough already, this is the world with angels at work. Okay? This is the world as it is with angels sent by God, running interference, protecting us. Could you imagine what it would be like if they weren't? Could you imagine that? Like, I don't even want to think about that. I don't even want to imagine what we would be seeing if not for the Lord and his angels. That is a terrifying thought to me. And if that were the end of the story, I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I couldn't live in in a world like that. But it isn't the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And so what I want to do as I close is share a few of God's promises. He has a whole bunch of promises for you, and I hope that you are spending time in the Scripture to know what, God's, what God has promised you as his people. But there are just three that I want to share related to spiritual warfare. The first one comes from 1 John chapter 4. The Apostle John says, Every spirit that doesn't acknowledge Jesus isn't from God. You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them. You've overcome those spirits— because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. That's a truth. That's a promise. That's something you can bet your life on. The one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. So don't be afraid. You're not as powerless as you, and, or as vulnerable as you might think you are, because God's Spirit lives inside you, and He is greater, and He is stronger, and He is smarter than all of the devils and all of the demons in the world combined. Like, it's not even close. Greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. Here's another promise. This one's from Colossians chapter 2. Okay? This one's from Colossians chapter 2. It helps us to understand some of what happened on the cross. It says, uh, Christ canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. What Paul is saying is that one of the things that happened there on the cross is that the devil, the demons, they were disarmed. Because before the cross, a demon or the devil could go up to a person, they could go up to one of God's people, and they could say, see, I know that you're a sinner because I have this checklist of all the things that you've done. I have this record of your sin. And that was their weapon against you. But that record of our sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus, Paul says. It was nailed to the cross. And so they are disarmed. The demons are disarmed. Their greatest weapon against you, guilt for sin, is taken away. They are disarmed. But even better, we read that he shamed them publicly. Okay? So some versions say 
he made a public spectacle of them, or he put them to open shame. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the the message. He says, Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Okay? That's what happened on the cross. Okay? You don't need to live in fear of the devils and of the demons because he's ultimately defeated. He's disarmed, and the whole universe knows it. That happened. The last promise I want to share is uh, from James chapter 4 from James uh, chapter 4. This is uh, Jesus' big brother saying, uh, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You and I, it's not our job to go around casting out demons, calling down angels, okay? That's not our job. Our job is to resist the devil. That's our job. I can barely control myself, okay? Let alone let alone like the demons and and the angelic uh, host, okay? That's not my job. My job is in spiritual warfare is resist the devil. And if we do, God promises he will flee. He will leave. Like he has to. That's a promise. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.